0: You're listening to a Rock Candy Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, (laughs) where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, we are continuing with the new stripped-down coronavirus Sacred Tension podcast. These episodes are unedited uh much less labor intensive for me because life is fucking insane, and <laughs> I do not have and I do not have the bandwidth to uh to do the normal amount of work that these shows normally require. so um if you hear, Uh, Rob's cat in the background, if you hear my cat, if you hear my partner watching Joe Bob Briggs in the next room, if, uh, Rob confesses to being a necrophile on the show, sorry, that is not being edited out. Um, so (laughs) yes. So you better watch yourself. All right. Also special thanks to my patrons who are my personal lords and saviors and, um, I cannot do this without them. Also, if you become a patron, you get extra content every week. You get my House of Heretics podcast, which Timothy and I uh, talk about random bullshit through the week, religious news. Uh, He is a Christian. I am not. We talk about various uh, religious news. We talk about politics. We talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, You also get occasional meditations on the tarot from me and other other bits and pieces also by the way if you're feeling a bit lonely right now as i think we all are um feel feel free to join my discord community um i the link will be in the show notes and it's just a bunch of like disgusting deviants and it's great it's a lot of fun and So if you need some people to hang out with, if you need some people to chat with, we have people from all different backgrounds on the Discord server. The, uh, the link will be in the show notes and you are welcome to join us. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stephen B. Long on Instagram at, uh, Stephen Bradford Long and, um, yeah, come, come hang out with me and, uh do whatever you can to feel less alone. Okay. So now that I've gotten over that, we're now going to make you feel really fucking bad about using all these platforms. (laughs) Okay. So Rob Larson, he has been on the show before. Um, He is a smart socialist. I'm a stupid socialist. I'm, I'm one of those socialists who's like, I don't, I don't fucking know how I, I don't fucking know anything. Let's just give people money. But, but Rob Larson is actually like one of the people who knows how to do that, and he actually he actually knows shit. So he's the author of Bit Tyrants, um, which is about how absolutely horrifying and disgusting. There he is. He's holding it. Is it really how How many pages is it? By the way, um, it look looks three
2: hundred sixteen quality pages. Quali-
1: yeah, no, it's very well written, and I finished it's a good it. Good book value. I it is. I finished it. Two or three days ago, and it is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so um, hi, Rob. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. How have you been? I'm great. I just got off work, so I'm exhausted. It's it's calmed down quite a bit, as listeners know. I'm I uh manage a grocery store. And now it is it's gone down to like manageable levels of crazy. So it's like Christmas every single week, is what it's like. So it's it's manageable, but people can't eat out anymore, and yeah. uh, so they're all cooking now, or they're all trying to bake, or whatever. <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs>
2: risky. Yeah, it's, <laughs>
1: it's very risky. These
2: people went in with they they knew the risks they were taking when they rolled the dice.
1: Yes, very much so. Baking. <laughs> so, I'm exhausted. So if I seem a bit more loopy during this conversation that's why. I understand. Um, yeah and also I'm sorry about the the series of escalatingly terrifying messages that I sent you earlier this <laughs> week where <laughs> ba- yeah my partner got sick um at earlier this week and we didn't know what it was. It was just like generic symptoms. Yes. You know like Low fever, aches, headache.
2: A cough, maybe.
1: Cough, sore throat. You know, things that under normal circumstances would be like, oh, this is fine.
2: Yeah, so some little cold strolling through.
1: But under the new regime of the novel coronavirus, it is fucking terrifying. And basically, the (laughs) protocol that we're following here... Um, is, that the hospitals are following is if you come down with something and the fever breaks in two days, then you can return to work. If not, then you have to go into quarantine. I don't know how legit that is. I, I don't know how much sense that makes, but that's what I was told. And so basically I, I emailed all of my upcoming guests for the show and was like, so maybe things are on, or <laughs> yes. maybe not. Maybe I'll get sick. Maybe he'll get worse. No one knows. So it was a hel- it was a hellacious two days. Yeah, it's a terrible, it's a scary, horrifying, evil time. Uh- it totally is. And so technology is what's really holding us together right now, you know. And I was just talking to um, a previous guest on on one of the previous shows. Like, can you imagine going through this time without? zoom or without these connecting you know digital companies that that help us stay connected it would be so much worse like imagine going through this in the 90s or <laughs> early yeah.
2: 2000s we would have had to read books and and stuff it would be a totally different experience it would have been have disastrous like write each other letters and read <laughs> word like that is what existed then yes it's, exactly. true. it's true it's a totally different experience now now we have just as bad habits. They're just mediated through online platforms, yeah.
1: (laughs) There you go. So you, but your book, Bit Tyrants, is about how horrifying and abusive each of the main tech companies are and how they pose an existential threat to humanity. And so while we are in the midst of this crisis and very much dependent on these um, tech giants. Now is, prob- you know, a lot of people might think this is a very bad time to bring this up, but I actually think it's the perfect time because I think it actually reveals just how dependent we are, just how enmeshed these technologies have become in our life. And um, so go ahead and tell us some about your work and what you do. Like what, what gives you the qualifications (laughs) to write this, this book? Why did you write this book?
2: Oh yeah. Well, you know, I've been teaching economics for 14 years or something like that. And, uh, you know, reading and living the field for many, many years now. And, uh, a long record of, you know, uh, Doing an economic analysis of different types, you know, like industrial analysis, like how does this market or that market work? And this is a book that's kind of a book-length version of that. And other stuff, like I've written about capitalism and the environment and stuff like that. You know, it's a big, complicated economic world out there, so there's a lot to talk about. Um, But that's sort of where I come from. What this book's all about is, yeah, like the biggest companies in the world. And what's interesting right now is the five biggest firms in the world. Are all these tech platforms? You know, very unusual for the biggest companies in the world to all be from one part of the economy. You know, but right now the biggest firms in the world and the biggest couple are trillion-dollar firms. You know, it's uh, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Like those five; those five are the, the dominant tech platform companies we call them. And you know, when I was young, it was like Walmart, Exxon, Chase Bank, Berkshire Hathaway. You know. But now those five dominate. And it's interesting, you know, uh, these are all what we call platform companies. And what that means is their markets are shaped by something that we call network effects. And in economics, network effects are something we see in certain markets where a product or a service is distributed through a network of some type. And there's lots of examples of this. The clearest one would be something like Facebook or like owning a phone, right? When you have the network effect in a market, it means when someone buys the product, when they start using it, the product becomes more valuable for all the other users, which is weird. But if you've got a phone and other people get phones, now there's more people that you can talk to, potentially more parties you can reach in the network. So it gets more useful to you, even though you didn't plan to make other people's phones more useful when you made your purchase. Right. So.
1: the basic idea with network effects is take take the phone lines and you know when phones were first invent- invented if you have a phone but no one else is on the phone <laughs> or no one Great. no one else has a phone then no one call
2: yourself it yeah. doesn't
1: it doesn't matter you know develop a split personality and call yourself like like um it, like Tyler Durden in uh in Fight Club and But as more people join the network, then the network becomes more valuable because then you can call more people. And then it becomes very hard to move from that, all collectively move from that to another network. So there's that like lock-in effect because everyone you know is on the same network. And the more people are on it, the more valuable it becomes. And so more people join it, a quote-unquote virtuous cycle. And then... You know, they call it a virtuous cycle. Yes. And so this is what Facebook, Instagram, Google, you you know, YouTube, all of them do. But on top of that, if I understand your book correctly, is that there is overlaid, old fashioned, capitalist, oil baron, <laughs> like... Economics or railway railway. I can't I can't use my words right now. Railway baron economics where they so so it's like on top of this already powerful system are already just gross capitalist, you know, impulses that the CEOs and companies do. If is that yeah. am I understanding that correctly?
2: Indeed, yeah. Like these are all ramifications of that network effect, though. Yeah. So when people get on Facebook, Facebook gets more useful for other people, just like the phones. And so it ends up, you it just makes those markets more prone to being monopolized than all the other markets in our capitalist economy. And bear in mind, most markets in our society are pretty prone to oligopoly or monopoly already oligopoly is where you have a couple of giant firms. and could
1: you also just because i've learned to not assume what people do and don't know could you define the word monopoly
2: yeah so traditionally monopoly is where you have one seller of a product and if you need something you can only get it from that one single producer you know so that's Mm -hmm. monopoly historically and there's all kinds of other phenomena. um that come out of this, but that's the biggest thing. And bear in mind, you know, we have we've had oil, you know, oil monopolies like in the Rockefeller days and uh, steel and tobacco monopolies. Like we have a long history of that. Markets with the network effect are just more prone to it even than those other markets, you know. And so Facebook, for example, is the hugely dominant social networking firm. And the next, of course, most dominant is Instagram, which is also part of Facebook, as people know. Right, All these big, all these companies in the big five, we mentioned a minute ago, these trillion dollar companies, they're what we call platform companies because when you have a network effect in a market you end up having just this irresistible gravitational attraction where all the users end up on the one network or using the one operating system with microsoft or the one online video sharing service which is youtube network effect dominated effects right so people go to that platform because it has so many users on it the presence of all those viewers attracts more video makers the bigger variety of videos attracts more consumers. And you get that, usually we call it a positive feedback loop rather than the virtuous cycle, because that sounds too nice, basically. Yes. So we try to make it sound nice.
1: So I think a lot of people kind of know the basic dynamics at play here. They're like, yeah, I only watch stuff on YouTube. I only ever buy Apple products or Google products or what have you. Hold on, my cat wants into the office just a second. Uh-huh. Um, so, okay. <laughs> um, but I don't think, I think because we live with these technologies and these companies just day in, day out, it isn't very intuita- intuitive to us anymore why monopolies are bad. Could you, so why? Just explain in a in very basic terms why? Because we all know that Google runs the fucking world. We all know that that Microsoft is huge. We all know that Apple was like the first company to break a trillion dollars or whatever. But why should we give a fuck about that?
2: Yeah, right on. So in Monopoly. I mean, there's lots of aspects to it, you know, but the short version is that monopolists have a lot of power in the marketplace because they don't have any competition or any meaningful competition. You know, if my company has a 98% market share, you know, that would mean it makes 98 out of every hundred units sold in this whole industry. So if a 98% market share in, you know, smartphones, that means I make 98 out of every hundred smartphones bought. That means I dominate the market, even if technically I have one or 2% of competitors still existing. So, once you're hugely dominant like that, you have market power, right? Traditionally, the thing monopolists like to do is hike prices, you know? So, if you have no competition, one thing you can do is you can purposefully cut back how much of the product you're making. You cut back supply on purpose because that will tend to inflate the price and maybe you make more profit from that. But monopolists, like any other powerful institution, you know, like a, a oil company that had a monopoly like Rockefeller Standard Oil in the 1800s, incredibly powerful institution as an oil monopoly. I mean, think about how powerful that is, you know? Well, there are a lot of things that came out of that. Rockefeller would just crush whole other business businesses and incorporate them into his business empire, totally controlled the US Congress for many years as far as its economic policymaking was concerned. Uh, you know, obviously, didn't give two shits about the environment. I mean, everyone knows that. But uh, you know, would uh, you know, use violence to break up strikes and things of uh, that nature. So monopolists tend to be like any other gigantic businesses, only just more secure because they don't have any competition. Monopoly exists a lot today, including with these tech platforms. More commonly, we have oligopoly, where you have like two or three giant firms. Think of the cell phone carriers, those three companies, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile Sprint, that new company, just three of them. So it's not quite as bad as a monopoly, but you still have huge, powerful institutions that dictate how the product's going to be sold and tell you what the terms of services are, and they're able to control the government and stuff like that.
1: And- the So libertarians and conservatives kind of live in this delusional fantasy about how, you know, there are just, you know, each business is just kind of an independent free actor and they all act in their best interest. And that competition between them just, you know, is what spurs innovation and momentum and health and vitality and happiness for everyone in the whole world. When the reality is that left to its own devices, monopolies are created and then monopolies actively destroy competition it and and that was what really stood out to me in your book is how take amazon for example how my cats just keep going in and out of the door and so i keep having to like lean over well you better get the door
2: enclosed bro i don't know what to tell you i mean you know, I, I, need, but I was in charge of the house i need so. to
1: i need to pull my shit together okay so yeah,
2: my buddy's sleeping here next to me i hope it stays that way she very
1: good close. what's her name
2: oh uh thrilleth actually thrilleth yeah i adopted her from a person who had named her lilith and i didn't like that so i named her oh thrilleth my kitty
1: is it. named my kitty is named lilith one of mine That's nice Yeah. Okay. So yes, one of the things that stood out to me in your book is how, you know, the right kind of exists with this just stupid fantasy that competition is what, if we just leave businesses to their own devices, then they will compete with one another, and the cream will rise to the top, and a rising tide lifts all boats in the process, and everyone's happy and it's all wonderful there are going to be a few losers but in general it benefits everyone when the reality is that when they're when we don't impose some kind of limit on the power or on what these companies can do then they turn into monopolies and what monopolies do is they destroy competition taking away the very basis of that delusional fantasy which is these competing forces against each other, creating a better world, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and competitive markets
2: have their own problems, too. Um, they tend to be more you know, economy obsessive and more destructive of resources and stuff like that. So not to let competitive markets off, though, completely. But it's true. Sure. Monopolists are usually very eager to c- gain a position of control in an industry, and so, yeah, one example is early in the book, I look at Microsoft, you know, which people think of as an old tech firm. But it's the second biggest corporation in the world right now. Trillion dollar firm says the cloud and all these other new aspects to its business model. Well, Bill Gates, you know, when he was you know building that company up and exploiting the network effect of an operating system, you know, the software that runs your computer and then you, or your smartphone. And then you can put applications in to run on top of that, right? The OS, the operating system, is what lets you do that. Well, they have a classic network effect, right? So if I make a application, you know, an app, if I make a game or you know a spreadsheet program or whatever, it has to run on a particular operating system. That's how software code works. So if I want to put it on a different operating system, I have to change it or port it, as they say. Well, that means there's a network effect. You know, if I'm making uh, games, if I make video games. Game developer, I want to make go to the trouble of making my game for an operating system that has lots of users. And since uh, IBM, the big computer manufacturer of the 20th century, when they released their big groundbreaking first personal computer in the early 80s, they hired Microsoft to make its operating system. And based on that contract, Microsoft and its Windows uh, operating system became the Computing platform monopoly and so anyone making a video game or an app needed to make it to run on Windows Because so many people were using Windows because it was on the IBM PC and so that attracted all the developers Now all those developers making fun games and tools attracts more users and it becomes hugely dominant Makes Apple sort of a niche product to this day. Basically, it's because of that platform economics, right? Well, once these firms reach that point what we discover is they're ruthlessly monopolistic just like John Rockefeller, but it's a different kind of product, so different kind of processes, you know. So we have plenty of records of Bill Gates, for example, who now people see as this sweet grandfatherly figure fighting. I, aid. I
1: really want to talk about that in a minute. Oh, we will. We'll, yeah. we'll
2: circle back to it then. That sounds fun. Yeah, fine. For sure. But back in the era when he's running, building up his monopolistic business, <clears throat> incredibly ruthless. He's like Rockefeller and talking about, you know, uh, digital research and other competitors that they had in those early days in the eighties and nineties, and saying, "We're going to crush." This company, we're going to crush Novell's software. Software uh, networking company. They would say we're going to destroy these competitors. Like that's the real nature of market competition. See, conservatives, like you said, and libertarians, they tend to think it's oh, you know, may the best man win, and that at any time customers might switch over and choose the competing product. The reality is, as these companies get big, they start using resources to actively destroy competitors and take their market share away and buy up all their and- equipment and so on.
1: And even if those competitors are better than they are, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like e-
2: far from unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Like even
1: yeah. even when those competitors have a better product, they Indeed. they I mean, still they got, destroy they were, them.
2: The, the one that got uh, Microsoft in trouble and almost got the firm broken up until George Bush got into office and saved them from that uh, was when they used their operating system monopoly to try to take over web browsing and try to crush Netscape which was an enjoyable early browser that was then replaced with internet Explorer, which no one uses unless they're accidentally booting it on a windows (laughs) operator. Yes, You know, so I'm very frequently replacing it with a shittier alternative. That's totally implied in this. That's right. And so what I point out now is like companies like Facebook, for example, and others like Google um, and certainly Microsoft, they have a thing where they actively watch for competitors and they're big enough where they can just put some staff just on watching for new possible entrants into the market that could disrupt them and mess up their monopolies. And then there's different things you can do. You can get people to refuse to do business with them and crush them that way. More often, you just throw a couple million bucks at the founders, dazzle them in the garage where they're developing this threatening software and just buy it, and then you can use it or whatever you want to do with it. Like Microsoft, mm. Facebook uh, have long records of this. And the Wall Street Journal was talking about this with Facebook, and I they unironically said their Facebook's always looking to stop prevent any firm from disrupting them, which is kind of funny because these guys always talk about how disruptive they are and we're disruptors. But of course, now that I'm big, I want to stop any disruptions because now I'm the big incumbent establishment. So that's kind of the wages of Monopoly. They're pretty uh, pretty addressed.
1: So, you know, John Ronson, who's one of my favorite writers, he has this line in, I want to say, The Psychopath Test um, where he says... You know, he was talking about the the connection between psychopathy and big firms and huge businesses, um, and he said, if you want to do true malicious evil, be boring, and I think that that is incredibly true of these organizations, because like all of this monopolistic bullshit, most people just don't care, because it's boring there's something dull i don't know money stuff it's probably you know thrilling to you because you're an economist but well, uh, well you know, it's funny. but the, i don't you know does know, that does that make sense
2: like they uh, they call economics the dismal science like that's a, a cliche term that people use and people say that to me they go <laughs> oh you're an economist the dismal science And i go well you're half right it's not really a science <laughs> <laughs> area of research really
1: more of an in, an intuition no i'm yeah, it's just it's an area of study
2: ideological most people have like most economists take all this weird arcane stuff for granted because it's part of whatever school of economics they're into mm. So like the libertarians and the neoclassicists and the Marxists, like all they all have like a bunch of weird extra junk they are kind of carrying from some thinker in the nineteenth century. But it's you know there's a lot about it that's re- that is really fascinating. And you know, like how are companies able to provide the things we use? You're know, like how are how do we make the giant tires for airplanes and stuff? All that stuff is economics.
1: You know, so I introduced you as a socialist. I hope I didn't speak out of turn. Would you describe yourself as a socialist? Yes. Okay cool me too i mean i figured i just i figured that you were reading your book because you talk about socializing these online platforms and whatnot but um oh what was i saying oh yeah so there's there's kind of the truly malicious truly disgusting behavior of of monopolists at the business and economic level if that i guess makes sense there's also the very disturbing human cost of the labor the front lines so the five main companies are Google Facebook Microsoft Apple and Amazon Amazon thank you talk about the the true human cost of these monopolies the oh, their yeah. their labor the way they treat their labor the way they treat their workers
2: and right on you know there's a lot of value in the services these companies provide you know like in the first page of the book i mentioned i use these all these companies products and services all the time yeah but of course when we look at these things you also got to look at the cost of them you know and many of these products are free when we use them uh, but it means usually it usually means you're paying in some other way. Like when you watch broadcast TV, you're paying by watching ads that the company sells space for, you know. Uh, so the human cost of these, of these companies, I mean, it varies a lot because the companies are so different. So one obvious place to look is Amazon, you know, which has the huge physical footprint of being an actual retailer. Google, Facebook, you know, it's mostly immaterial software and internet connection based uh, business models, you know. When you look at uh, Amazon, they're moving goods a lot, and so they have this gigantic warehouse staff, uh, which is extremely large and uh, is fairly aggressively exploited, even by, you know, global standards uh, at this point. So just recently, they fired some union organizers who are trying to organize walkouts or oppose the company's kind of cavalier attitude towards COVID-19 in the uh, packaging, in the package sorting centers, and the big fulfillment centers, you know, which have gigantic staffs and a huge amount of things being touched by many people. It's like a legitimate concern, you know, but the company of course, you know, is trying to be uh, penny pinching and spend as little on this as they can get away with. And so they're firing people about it. And, you know, Amazon has a long record of exhausting its uh, warehouse workforce and having them experience heat stroke because they want to keep the garage doors closed. So there's less theft.
1: Didn't long they record. have ambulances waiting at the, f- at the door? for when they would pass out
2: that's an especially notorious episode yeah out in allentown pennsylvania a couple of years ago but it's real they hire paramedics yeah you know to sit there and wait because they're keeping the doors closed and they work these people constantly so and they limit their break time very and, aggressively in
1: like the midwest in
2: oh yeah in, in the these... midwest back where i'm from when the summers are brutal they're fairly ungodly yeah uh pretty godforsaken conditions in the summer out there so you're working a warehouse job and running all through your shift i mean you can imagine you know and actually they ended up getting a little bit of legal trouble with osha because of that you know the workplace safety regulator because an emergency room doctor in the town called them it wasn't a worker calling osha and reporting conditions in their workplace was some doctor in the city going what the hell is going on with all these amazon workers coming in with heat stroke and heat stress what the like they, you know, it's pregnant workers who came in in that condition. So he's like, "Oh, I'll yes. call, I'll call OSHA. I don't care." So it's interesting. Like that's Amazon, and they have a long record there. I just wrote an article for Current Affairs that looked at some of Amazon's recent stuff with COVID nineteen. It's kind mm. of interesting. But there's other ones too. Like one another example I like is that uh, Facebook and also mainly through YouTube, Google as well. They have fairly large blue collar workforces uh, in their content moderating.
1: I was uh, just going to bring this yeah. up. This is, this is horrifying to me. Yeah, it's pretty rough. This, to this read is about. like yeah. the most fucking dystopian thing in the whole book. That and yeah. Amazon. This and Amazon, and the Apple factory. But all of it, all of it was fucking dystopian. Yeah, and I was laying on my couch, on my iPhone, reading your book on the Kindle yeah. app, listening to music through my AirPods, and just feeling the grossest. I think I've ever felt reading a book.
2: <laughs> it's look hey, like I say in the book, it's hard to avoid these companies. It, like exactly. try to not rely on them, especially now in this quarantine environment. It's much worse. They're more powerful now than they were when I wrote the yes, damn book. exactly. The, okay, the message, so messages not getting stale.
1: So the so the uh, content reviewers, they yeah. if I understand correctly, what they do mm. is when you upload something, they send it to someone. In Indonesia, or no. no? I read an article no. about this on Facebook.
2: Yeah, they be using Indonesian about and
1: Philippine
2: staff, but they certainly don't do it when you upload video. They do it when it gets flagged by someone. Oh, I got it. Okay, okay. It's like an ocean. But everything.
1: they have, but they have like eight seconds or something. To... Yeah, these guys.
2: Of course, of course, they're being and, worked in some yeah super industrialized, uh, super tailorist manner. So they're, you know, being clocked and, you know, the system controls how long you see it. So when someone flags a YouTube video or, you know, uh, or reports a Facebook post or something, like these people have a few seconds to, to look at it and then enter a command to make the decision about how to code it or how to reference and, it. And you're seeing beheadings, you're seeing murders, you're seeing child soldiers, you're seeing sexual attacks. like rape,
1: every, rapes and yeah, drug like abuse. Heinous
2: hate speech and acts. Like it's like the worst Gig you can possibly imagine. I mean, I mean, really,
1: it's a like nonstop the switch in the big house like It is this non-stop torrent of the worst of humanity every eight seconds.
2: And when you're a temp, bear in mind these are third party firms. Yeah, and often international contractors. But you yes, aren't making. You're making
1: or... pennies doing this.
2: Incredibly small amounts of money to watch the worst that humanity does for yes. the biggest, most profitable firms in the world. That it is, is accurate. This is capitalism. You know, these firms own the platform, so they're monopolists and oligopolists. They can work individual humans who have to eat every day on some heinous exploitative terms, especially using international, you know, labor relations. And yeah. then we sit here and go like, "I love YouTube. It's so much fun. I just enjoy using it." Like we have so. <laughs> so so little understanding what's going on behind these firms like let alone the technical stuff and i know very little about how software writing works you know i'm interested in the economics of this industry and how Mm. big and powerful these firms are and what happens when they fight each other which happens with some regularity like that's the part about this that's kind of juicy and that your listeners might get a kick out of this it's like learning all the incredible tyranny inside these companies and just like how even the executives are bullied by the ceo's And the environmental aspects, I have a whole section on the labor records of each of these giant bastards. It's obviously I find it to be pretty juicy. Um, Oh,
1: I found it fast. I, I read the book in about three or four days. I, I was riveted. I loved the book. I thought it was fascinating. I'm also, yeah, it was, it was very well written. I was very impressed and you're a great writer. I really appreciate it. Um, So, yeah, I, I really appreciated the kind of economic, you know, insight that you brought to it, because that is something that I'm very stupid on. I do, I do not understand that at all, but I'm also fascinated by tech. I'm fascinated by kind of the world of, of technology and, um, so, yeah, it, and kind of marrying that with socialism, it was just great. I really found it a very riveting read. So I hope everyone goes and buys the book. And um, That's
2: great, I'm really glad you got a kick out of it.
1: I did very much so. So um, and then one more example that I want to hit on of the very real cost of these platforms on their workers, the uh, suicide strikes at the foxconn factories in china which uh make iphones and these workers and you you chronicle all of this in your book these they they started putting up suicide nets on the buildings so because they were getting so many suicides um in these horrific conditions and then these workers were able to actually push some demands by threatening a mass suicide, which is a horrific and b metal as fuck.
2: Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty <laughs> serious. Uh, it's suicide strike. is just a term I used in the book because I never I wasn't I can only think of a tiny number of cases like this. right. But yeah, we're talking about conditions, yeah, and the Foxconn plants, right? Yeah, the ones in mainland China that assemble all the cool-ass chips made in America and Korea and Japan, and all the fancy components and the screens, and put them together into the final product and package them, which is, you know, a huge amount of very precise work. So much in these tiny little toys we have. It's incredible. So they make all these, you know, very valuable little toys we spent, and tools that we spend so much on. But the conditions where these guys work, you know, this this workforce is employed, it's pretty... Uh, heinous and by now you know like this story has kind of hit the public. people have heard that there are pretty horrible conditions there. maybe they care about it, maybe they don't. What was true what was happening is in these worker dormitories associated with these huge production installations in China, these workers would throw themselves off frequently because of the horrifying conditions and of course the terrible pay and everything else. And it would get to the point where some of these dormitories were surrounded at the top level by a mesh net, yeah, around the roof. So these workers wouldn't be able to throw themselves off because it was so prevalent. And then large groups of workers started saying, we're all going to throw ourselves off. We don't do this. And they were able to get, yeah, like pay and other concessions, which is pretty crazy, yeah.
1: I mean, it's but it's incredibly I mean, horrifying. I mean, Again,
2: it's, this is capital. It shouldn't come – to the point that the workers are threatening to throw themselves to their deaths. Like that is, is there any way we could have worker compensation that doesn't rely on suicide threats? Like that would be great. But this is the exploitative global capitalism structure. And of course we see this in many industries and across, across electronics. That's not unique to Apple. Samsung phones are often made in the exact same factories. Of you course. Know. So it's across the industry, even though, again, we have an oligopoly with a couple of, uh, giant makers involved.
1: Define oligopoly.
2: Yeah, again, that's where you've got that small number of very big firms. Got it. So if yes. there's one company, it's a monopoly. Cell phone carriers where you have three, that's the oligopoly.
1: Oligopoly. And then you use the word duopoly, which is like Samsung and Apple kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's
2: an oligopoly with just the
1: two. With just the two. Okay. Got it. So okay. So one of the themes that you hit on that I found particularly interesting. And just to give some personal history here, I worshipped at the altar of these mythologized uh, CEOs and totally believed, as with everyone else, because it's just the culture we live in. It is, you know, we we believe in the benevolent billionaire. We believe... Yeah, we believe in this myth of the benevolent billionaire, and the the genius billionaire, uh, kind of based on Steve Jobs and Gates and Bezos and all of and uh, Schmidt and you know the founders of Google and and what have you. So, a. They're disgusting shit gibbons who are like abortions of the cosmos and shouldn't exist they're they're like they're like being billionaire being a billionaire is a state of being that by its nature should not exist and just makes you a disgusting evil mutation of a human being and like by its nature turns you into this this disgusting shit gibbon like they should not exist. Like they are, they're like, you know, monsters from Resident Evil that should just be shot on sight uh, because they just destroy everything they come across. Is ha- now how I see billionaires.
2: Uh, I still got it. I'm still able to, yeah, make people not sympathize with them. <laughs> Actually,
1: yeah, <something laughs> you, do. Is you, you do. If you look
2: at these guys, and this isn't really something I particularly anticipated when I started the book like I you know mainly writing about the companies to me the whichever particular douchebag is in charge of them this week is a sort of partially a secondary issue what turned out writing these was that yeah from Gates to more famously Steve Jobs and Bezos and um, you know even Zuckerberg these guys are notorious for being like particularly mean and tyrannical as bosses and being like very especially bullying Uh, Of course, to their subordinates, these people never yell and scream at people who, you know, during their
1: during their TED talk, they they never they never like go on a tantrum during a TED talk when the whole world they're very
2: they're definitely very yeah PR and image savvy. They know not to do that. And but what they're doing, yeah, they're you know they're. In a corporate hierarchy, you own company. It's a, it's a business. Like your boss tells you what to do. And if you don't, they fire your ass. There's no republic in a business. Everybody's had a boss who says, well, it's not a democracy. So clean out the bus tubs or whatever. Right. So these guys, though, are especially like bullying to these people, like in front of all their colleagues, yell at them. And if you yell back, you're fired. You know, like it's an yes. ugly it's a pretty ugly thing it just turned out that every one of these CEOs does it so it became a theme of the book without me even planning it like it just emerged naturally that that's the case and, and so Jeff Bezos yes. and Steve Jobs are kind of especially famous for humiliating their uh, subordinates in front of others but it's pretty common and um, you know again I just a couple of days ago I was debating a libertarian from the Ayn Rand Institute
1: oh and, really
2: uh, yeah we talked about this stuff quite a bit and, you know he said I'd be I'd wish I could go back in time and be, you know, he, he, minimized it, said, Oh, so they yell big deal. You know, they also fire your ass. If you, you know, if your wife gets pregnant, cause now you won't be psychotically devoted to the firm all the time. We said, I would like to go and be yelled at by Steve jobs to be yelled at by a genius like that. It's like a strange way of looking at it, but it's just not recognizing the hierarchy that exists within these businesses and, like and their internal tyrannies. And,
1: a, and the, that, and the effects of abuse.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the it's the, the, the
1: psychological effects of of having, you know, some disgusting billionaires like screaming at you whenever you go to work, the the uh, the power differential of having someone that mighty who yeah. who who literally has, you know, your entire livelihood in the palm of their hand and using that to victimize you i mean it the it i am stunned that he said that i shouldn't be your the, the your friend quote-unquote who you were debating from the Ayn Rand oh, yeah, i mean yeah. i'm i'm stunned i shouldn't be stunned but i'm just stunned that
2: you should, you should not be stunned i, People are very I know i'm still
1: so yet, naive
2: it's uh, it's just this naivete right about human nature. You're right to be disgusted. Just don't be surprised. Like that's it's to be sure.
1: Unexpected. So the other but, yeah. thing, well, the other thing that stood out to me is the cultural myth about these guys is that they are geniuses who shaped the world from their brilliance, from just their sheer stupendous creativity and iq they created these incredible things and so you know there's like there's this cultural myth about um you know steve jobs taking acid and seeing the iphone or or whatever the fuck it is just crazy shit like that and how he lived this incredibly like monk-like ascetic life and have you heard any of that you?
2: Uh, I try to avoid like okay, the good. most nakedly worshipful writing about these guys. Like I read some of Walter Isaacson's big Steve Jobs biography yes. that everyone refers to. I'm mostly interested in the companies, and you get you learn so much about these CEOs just by reading about the company because everyone's like them and building them up for so it's long. It's built
1: in their but image. There's
2: so much coverage of these guys, yeah, that's just naked, undisguised ass kissery. And other geniuses. It maybe screams at you, but it's because he's brilliant. It's Un- just like abusive daddy accepting. It's like a creepy.
1: It's very creepy. Gross thing, yeah. And Elon Musk.
2: Geniuses. Very commonly, they're actually like fuck-ups in the firm. Like Steve Jobs. I mean, it's like seen he's.
1: We, that's exactly
2: it. We think of him as a tech, gen- you know, like he's the capitalist genius that people talk about now, except maybe Elon Musk. we can also talk about that idiot, but Steve Jobs, like every <laughs> every major decision he made with the firm was a disaster. And he has, he had very limited role in designing even the iPod, let alone the iPhones like Johnny Ivy and the other huge band of uh, industrial engineers and designers at Apple that did all the work there from the, mm. you know, iMac computers where they made their comeback all the way up to, you know, the end of uh, job's tenure and like jobs, you know, the big thing is Jobs, I talk about this a lot in the chapter, we should talk about it a little, like Jobs is a good example. Several of these CEO billionaires knew at the beginning of their businesses that there was a network effect they could exploit, and they could become a platform and set these technical standards and have total, utter monopolies as they do now.
1: Gates so was like very Bill Gates deliberate were, about they're
2: that. They're on the record, yeah, as knowing it very early in their business, way before they became gigantic mm. and all-controlling. That that would happen. But Steve Jobs, I like because he's so dumb. He didn't understand network effects and platforms at all to the extent (laughs) that he blew it two times, you know. So when Microsoft was becoming the operating system monopolist because it had the big audience from being on the IBM PC. So all these programmers made programs for it which attracted more users and you get that positive feedback. Apple was building things like the Apple 3 and the Lisa, which were closed platforms. Like you couldn't just make games or applications to run on it the way you could for Windows. So by limiting how many apps, so all the applications had to be like custom made. So by limiting how many applications they had, they made it a lot less useful than other open computing systems like Windows or the earlier Apple II, which was open, that was a big change. Jobs wanted that was his thing. The two from the three was to close the platform. That's why Windows is dominant today on PCs to to this time is because Jobs yeah. made that idiotic decision of not understanding how platforms work. But then in 2006, when they unleashed, the, when they uh, you know in 2007, when they released the iPhone, he made the mistake again. Rather than having an open platform that you can make games for, which is what Android has now, Google's Android operating system, which most of the phones run on. Yeah. When he released the iPhone, it was you couldn't make a program for it. You know, Apple had to like approach you. Now they have the App Store, which you can uh, make some applications for, but they have a million criteria and they often check people and don't explain why and so on. But yeah. like that's why Android phones ran off with the smartphone market in the 2000s. So Jobs is actually. You're like, what a genius. You know, this guy was just saying this to me this week. He's actually like a conspicuous fuck up because he blew it two times. He could have learned his lesson. He had a second chance because they were first to market with mobile with the iPhone and he fucked it up again. So, whereas Zuckerberg or Gates knew what they were doing and they kept their, their software open and to the point where they could build up platforms and become huge. So it's amazing watching it's- someone being called a genius and being just, yeah, like the visual, black-wearing, turtleneck-having, jeans wearing, cool CEO archetype <laughs> to this day. He's actually uh-huh. a conspicuous fuck up idiot compared to his other colleagues. That amazes me.
1: It's it's incredible. And also Gates failed to take the internet seriously.
2: Yeah he has his own fuck up and yeah all the way through the 90s. Yeah like when the internet was even
1: which you know, was, after being which developed was in the public sector by the
2: military and the universities for years. Once it was even becoming a commercial product with a lot of people using it, he still, like, refused to, like, acknowledge it had potential or that it, it only started caring once it became possible for operating syst- browsers to, like, replace operating systems, which kind of happens now on Google Google's Chromebooks. You basically run the whole thing through the Chrome browser. That basically is the operating system. So that mm-hmm. shows that it could work. Only then did he care and try to take it over and then end up getting in legal trouble and stuff like that.
1: Right. And yeah, and that's why Microsoft was so late to the game with mobile. Um, Rob is grabbing his cat. Very good. Let's see her. She's very pretty. Very pretty tortoiseshell kitty. Very nice.
2: (laughs) She's very brave.
1: Awesome. Um, Yeah. So. I think another really important element to discuss here is that these guys, they didn't invent anything, especially jobs. They took equipment or they, they took innovations that were invented in the public sector that were, um, invented by the military, by DARPA or by, um, I'm being very distracted by the gorgeous cat that's on screen right now. She's very sweet, um, <laughs> uh, but invented by the university system. They took that. They they and then they stole it, <laughs> basically, or they copied it. Uh, they didn't invent any of it. Like the Windows system, the the Windows operating system. They like Gates or and jobs they saw that in a university so you know the whole story about that and then they copied it same with the iphone and the touch technology they took that from a university or military whatever so even the stuff that they claim to have invented they didn't fucking invent
2: it's true and when you get into this what you discover is that the large balance of the technology involved in this from the you know, from the services provided by the platforms themselves to the guts of your phones, all the way to the Internet itself, which is what all these fancy apps need to run on, of course, instead of being online enabled. They all come from the public sector, you know. So, yeah, like people like I like to point out, you know, the Internet the internet network that connects all the networks in the world so you can access everything the internet you know the internet's original name was darpanet because it was developed by darpa the defense advanced research projects administration which is the pentagon's research arm you know right and it it along with some of the computer forward university campuses were the forces for decades in the mm-hmm. 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s pouring money into computerized research to meet pentagon data crunching uh, needs but also to meet uh, corporate uh, you know data storage and computation needs and it was only that that public sector research leadership that led to the drive to get these computers all to be able to talk to each other so that we could share data sets among scientists and so the Pentagon could have a nuclear war, a survivable network, and also for counterinsurgency and data collection under uh, the CIA's auspices who were very interested in this whole process, of course. And so that's the history of the internet. And by the 90s, it was working well enough to where it could be privatized. And even then, companies only like sort of expanded the high-speed bandwidth service of today out from the university campuses which are sort of natural nuclei of users again at the public expense so that's the internet if you look at like the fancy guts of the smartphone which again is really what they take credit for more than anything else is yeah but they make the phones well the other gps comes from the military Uh, You know, a bunch of the battery elements come from the Department of Energy, like that screen, like the the multi-touch screen interface, which is like one of the definitive features of this is you can do so much just by touching the screen. The thing was developed at CERN, like the European Particle Collider uh, facility, so Mm. that they could have a way of running this giant, confusing, super colliding uh, computerized magnet system in a way that didn't require them to remember everything. You can access it with this little device we invented for that purpose. It's true. Like a lot of the... um, glass features that we're talking about like the military tried to get like companies to take an interest in it and they wouldn't take it on you know at t passed at managing the internet for the Pentagon in the 1980s you know like they, the market firms specifically said we don't want this Ugh. even after you the government you know, basically through our parents' generation's taxes paid to develop this stuff, you know, we're not going to take it on. It could disrupt phone service. I'm not going to take that risk. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and even the firms themselves, like Google's original web address was not Google.com. It was Google.stanford.edu. It's exactly. developed on some research campus where they're freed from the week by week pressure to return money to investors and keep a stock price up. You yes. gradually develop some fun, valuable thing like Google search engine, which refines its searches with every search that you do. So it has a network yeah. effect. More users makes it more useful, just like your phone and Facebook does. It also means we have a near monopoly on that. Like Google is like fairly dominant, especially a mobile search. Bing mostly exists on computers that are running stupid windows. So if you launch a browser it'll, or a yeah search engine. It'll default to stupid Bing. I don't think
1: anyone uses it otherwise. (laughs) No, not at all. Also, there's this brilliant diagram in your book, um, which shows like the component parts of the iPhone and where they were actually invented. I don't, I think, I think that came from, tell me who originated that diagram because it's so, it's so great. Um, but it, it like breaks down all of the most fundamental parts of the iPhone and where they were actually invented. And they were all invented basically outside of capitalism, <laughs> you know?
2: Exactly. And that's sort of where we're going with this. Yeah. So if you take a look, yeah, there is this, uh, diagram that I reproduced in the book. It's from a, like a government document. It's from an, an office of, uh, technology. I think the office mm. of technology research, I forget right now which um, federal government arm released this report, you know, it's in a book and you can find it. Um, You know, it's just a diagram of all the big groundbreaking components of the iPod and refers to a similar document that does the same thing for an iPhone. It just breaks down which public entity funded each part of it. Yeah. So the department of energy for the thin film metallic multilayers on the screen, mm. uh, national Institute of health and national science foundation for liquid crystal research. because so those are capacitive sensors. They use your skin's electricity to sense where your finger is on the screen. That's how that stuff works. You know, mm. army research office. Yeah. Just for the signal processing stuff. So that you're, uh, cellular chip can talk to some cell tower uh, a couple miles away and communicate and send data and so on like that. It's you know, these things are huge technological and engineering breakthroughs. They take years and years of research. If you're running a corporation, some capitalist private sector business, you're under near term pressure to get your profit up and get your stock price up, you know, like that's you know, if you don't do that in a couple quarters and you're a CEO, the board will throw you out. Right They'll give you a million bucks on your way out the door, you know, because that's how they do it, but then they'll hire someone else. But hmm. in the public you know in the public sector and the universities and the Pentagon, you have to justify your research all the time. And applying to grants is half of what you do if you're a scientist. But if you have good research that's promising, you can get that regular, steady funding and just fuck around. Because in the sciences, you never know if your research is going to give you something useful, let alone something that's going to make you money. You know, so it just doesn't make sense to expect capitalist markets to produce this kind of thing. The only exception I mentioned in the Mm. book of a modern essential piece of computing that comes from the private sector is the transistor itself, which are those little simple switches that make up the big circuits that are grouped in circuit boards in your computers and into your phones and stuff. Well, that transistor was developed by uh, AT and T under its famous research uh, entity, Bell Labs, which people may have heard of, or probably our parents' generation will remember that. But that's back when AT&T was a monopoly. Yes. Back when they had a phone monopoly. So there's no competition. So they were immune to that month, week by week, keep your stock price up pressure. Once they lost, we're breaking, the Justice Department uh, broke up AT&T in 1981, I believe. Since then, they got rid of that research. So Now we have competitors. We're not going to put money into this fundamental research. Let the government do it. But it amazes me. That's the big thing that people use to justify these tech companies and their antics. Don't let people get away with that. They didn't develop this technology. It's all on the record. And the record is the opposite of what they say. It was public sector research.
1: It's the opposite of the, you know, Iron Man-esque mythology. So to, to review, one, these companies are gigantic, disgusting monopolies that do evil, creepy, shady shit. Two, they treat their workforces like garbage and run them to heat stroke, to suicide strikes, and you know, traumatize them and give them horrific PTSD by making them look at beheadings all day long. Three, their CEOs are douchebag shit gibbons who don't actually contribute to society because they are idiots who were just in the right place at the right time, who didn't invent this technology, so don't believe the myths about them. And finally, three, no, four, they didn't even invent the technology to begin with. It came from the public sector. (laughs) So there it is in summary. So now what do we do about it?
2: Yeah, well, there's a number of things that can be done. So many liberals would like the example of regulation. We'll regulate these firms, see, and we'll put limits on what they can do, and we'll say they can do these things, which are more or less legitimate competition, but they can't do these other things to crush new competitors, and there's limits on what they can do with our data, and... Uh, you know, what, what firms they can buy and merge with. That's an option. Uh, in the U.S., you know, this is a pretty regulation-averse country, or it's a pretty capitalist-dominated society. But the other hand, the European Union, which is quite capitalist, has a stronger tradition of the uh, regulatory state. And so over there, they put a number of regulations in place on these firms and are limiting what they're allowed to do in terms of their business practices to smoosh competitors. And they're putting limits on what they can do with our data, or at least European users' data, which is a meaningful thing for them. There's real money at stake there. But in the U.S., that's pretty limited. And you know, right now, everything's on hold with the virus, of course. But these firms were coming under tons of investigations uh, when this all started. And so people expect those will come back eventually one form or another. But meanwhile, we're getting more and more reliant on these firms and regulations not coming anytime soon. I'm kind of skeptical how far it'll get in a country like this anyway. So another option will be to go uh, a little more dramatically and try to have a socialized tech sector, which I think is something we can talk about. You know, now people think socialism, you know, so the government controls it. That's usually not what we're talking about. And, you know, that's not what a lot of people use the socialism term today are thinking of. We're thinking of the traditional goal of worker control of the means of production. So when you go to your work, whatever job you have, whatever you produce there, sandwiches, pharmaceutical products, health insurance, tech services, whatever it is, you and your coworkers have access to the information that management usually keeps for itself. And you make the decisions that management and executives usually make, like what we're going to invest in or how we're going to make the product better or make it more efficiently. What will be the conditions that we work in here? Those are the kind of things that management usually makes. Under socialism, it would be worker control. So you and your colleagues would decide. Now of course industries work with you know one with another. You know, the people that make food have to then work with food processors, food processing firms and food trans, you know, food shippers for transportation. So companies, you know, socialized workplaces would have to work together. And manage huge institutions like you know, data centers and oil refineries and palm oil plantations and stuff. So, you know, we on the left have to make our peace with you know, economic production comes in big chunks, yeah. big economic installations, so that we can make the goods in the most efficient way with economies of scale to keep the cost down. So we have a prayer of being able to afford this stuff as we go through re-gearing our economy to deal with climate change. So there's a lot going on there. But that would mean the worker-run workplaces would have to federate one with another, so we would send representatives to go to talk with the representatives of other socialized firms that are producing our inputs and work with the people who use our outputs. So we have chains of production of goods. Bear in mind that a lot of the things we buy now, like phones and cars, are the products of hundreds of companies that make all the fancy, confusing components that go into these fancy modern machines that we use without thinking about how complicated they are, something we would have to think about if we wanted to socialize these firms. And a big ramification of that, for these tech platforms in particular, is that we users are among the workforce, we're part of the workforce. We're the ones who make the Facebook posts, we're the ones who make the YouTube videos, we're the ones who make the websites for Google to index in the first place. If you
1: tweet. So we're
2: part of that workforce, our organization and articulating with the organized workforces of these firms would be like that would be the decision making entity under a socialized tech industry. And right now, tech is trying to organize. Like, that was happening before this disease kicked off. Like, Google workers are doing walkouts over developing AI for the Pentagon. And these Amazon mm. workers are going on strike over COVID-19 safety conditions in the Amazon plants. Like, there's a labor movement happening in tech. And I'm in touch with it myself. I'm happy to say that the uh, Communication Workers of America, that national union, which includes a lot of people in tech, a lot of software coders and uh, platform workers there, are are uh, using my book in the organizing that they do, that's which I'm awesome. very proud of, you know? That's yeah. That's great. very cool. I'm, I'm happy about that.
1: You should be uh, I was very much. So
2: with those guys, it's hard work And you know, these firms fight unions, just like the traditional old economy does. These guys mm-hmm. did to build their platforms up, become corporations rather than, you know, NGOs or something. But to build up and to make their YouTube video load time so fast and to make you know Apple smartphones efficiently, like these companies have to raise cash to do that. And it's a capitalist society. So what you do that is by incorporating and having an IPO and having people give you about a bunch of money that you use to scale the firm up and get big. You know, So they became capitalists because it's a capitalist society. The research came from the public sector, and I don't see why we shouldn't bring it back under public auspices by socializing these giant platform bastards and not let them push around their workforces and hoard our data anymore.
1: Well, you know, and there's this other aspect to it, which is all of the free speech concerns about like when, when, um, Oh, screaming fat man, conspiracy theorist, Alex Alex Jones. Jones, Yes. (laughs) When he was banned from, all of the major platforms, there was this, this massive panic over that. And, um, and I, I had two thoughts watching that whole thing. Like, yeah, this is worrying 2 I'm happy he's gone, but yes, it's worrying. Um, but also this is the, this is like the least Orwellian shit that these companies have done to us, pulling Alex Jones from all the major platforms, that is the least Orwellian thing that they have done to us. They spy on us. They collect our data. They, they manipulate us. They manipulate our speech. They manipulate our voting. They manipulate our buying choices, our preferences. They, they manipulate our mood. First, kicking off Alex Jones is the least fucking Orwellian thing that they've done. It's not, you know, it sets a scary precedent, but they were already evil before they did that. And B, there's a really simple way to resolve the worries about free speech. Just make it public. <laughs> yeah. And make it a utility. And then these worries of sp- about free speech would would be more easily resolved.
2: It's true. And yeah, like the Alex Jones moment was a big watershed because a lot of us were like, yeah, well, that lying evil scumbag, well, you know, it's getting what he deserved. And I will say Alex Jones, like usually, you know, way before these tech platforms had to make the call. Back in the 20th century days of just TV network media, the traditional line was incitement to violence. You know, someone says people are evil scumbags. They get to say that, but if they say they're evil scumbags and we should go over there and lynch them. Like, okay, now you're trying to get people to kill someone. Now you've crossed a clear line. And it was like a, there's, Problems with that, but it's like a clear line that's useful to us. We have some standard. Like Alex Jones, I think you can make a very good case cross that line a number of times. Yeah. Releasing the personal information of like the parents of Sandy Hook shooting victims, um, you know, like and on screen all the time, he would like talk about guys, uh, you know, like uh, stupid uh, Robert Mueller, who everyone idiotically thought was going to make Trump go away for us. He'd say someone's got to do something about him, and he would like pantomime shooting a rifle. <laughs> yes. I remember that specifically went to them, and they're like, "No, nah, you know." it's not incitement where that's not, it's not quite there. And I was like, come on. Like that to or, me is like, well, I feel like that's where the line is. Like, I, I feel the same way where the, the line is. So we yes, help. he panted. Then eventually yes. they changed their mind and did get rid of them. So to me, like there is justification for that, but getting, taking these people off platforms, I think sometimes just makes them more Yeah, It certainly makes the people who already like them think that they're being See, Facebook's part of the deep state conspiracy to stop the well, white man from controlling his American country. You know, like all this insane what, shit. Gets what? Turned, but people say that shit. So I'm, the point is, it shouldn't be Facebook and Google's choice. Like if someone's going to be in charge That's, of who gets the platform, it shouldn't be these privately traded corporations yes. run by douchebags who used our parents' tax dollars to develop technology that they now monopolize. Yes. sell our data off to advertisers. Like it's a pretty ugly scenario. That's it, that's it exactly. Be be,
1: that because important. what and maybe this is just me having, you know, being a American and you know being out here in North Carolina on my faggot ranch, surrounded by cows, and just being very um, you know, freedom, etc. But what worries me is that i think that we are in a new unprecedented place in history with these platforms where a private company has become the public square and in such a way that we don't even realize it in such a way and to a degree that the public square could never be the public square never you know you know, never recorded your, your skin tones or when you connected with, or, or, you know, spied on when you went to coffee with that, you know, when your phones, you know, met in a coffee shop and then where you went afterwards or, you know, what, what mood you're in the public square never did that. And we never know what it's doing. We, we, we never know what these companies are, gathering and collecting and what they're doing with it and now they're they are private companies that have now come to be the public square and the only thing keeping them from the the only thing that inspired them to ban Alex Jones and inspires them to say not ban me or the other podcasters is some vague um, principle that doesn't seem very well defined and it's up to these gigantic corporations <laughs> Does the, I don't know Are you are you tracking? Are you following me? whereas if it were enshrined in law rather than just what these companies feel is right I don't know I'm not thinking, I haven't thought very clearly about this but it creeps me out no matter, <laughs> either way it
2: is creepy you know, like, not not for nothing that you have that reaction. Yeah, um, yeah. commercial private media have always kind of had this power since capitalism right. started. Like, it used to be, like, the broadsheet newspapers were sort of the public square. But you also had actual public squares in those days. But they've always sort of had this dilemma. But, yeah, like, now, like, Facebook and YouTube, I mean, my God, like, that's where people go to share ideas and to receive news. Exactly. Like, that's... What those hubs are. It's interesting, you know. I think it was um, you know, like the traditional conservative argument is it's private property, government should be shouldn't be able to tell you what to do with it. You know, we're not on the hook for public responsibilities, we're a, we're private property, so you shouldn't tell corporations what to do and regulate them, you dirty liberals. But now, like what's happening is now that these companies have their own. You know, monopoly over the public square, and they're not as arch conservative as conservatives want, like as Alex Jones might want. They're like going after YouTube and saying, "You guys are the public square. You shouldn't be able to do mean things to us, even though they're private properties. So, exactly, your uh, university, uh, your viewers may know, is a big maker of right wing YouTube videos and explainer videos. Uh-huh. They're very nicely produced and filled with awful right wing. Trump or worse arguments that you can enjoy on YouTube easily. And they're all over the place and they're heavily advertised and they're Koch yep. brother funded and stuff like that. Yep. Well, those guys, uh, as I recall, they got labeled by YouTube as being extremist or being uh, controversial. I forget, like YouTube has a couple, they're always shifting them. They have a couple different designations for like this content's a little iffy. And they applied one of those, I forget exactly which one, to uh, Prager Use videos. And Prager took them to court and lost. Uh, just recently, like last week, I think, Ooh, because they I said need like these, these firms are that. in the public square, we should be they shouldn't be able to you know put a disclaimer on us or a weird label on our videos that's violating their responsibility as operators of a public square. And they lost that court case, which is just hilarious because this is a conservative video channel that's yes. been arguing for years. Like you keep your hands off our private property, government. I don't want you governing me with your speed limits and stops. But- Doesn't now they're gonna boot it off YouTube, but like government designate that these private property has to keep our shitty website on there with full access. You know, like it's amazing these guys, the phoniness levels that are achieved are pretty impressive.
1: Doesn't that I think that reveals how how intuitively wrong it is, though, in a way. It's like what they they feel so huge that they permeate our lives in a way that they feel like the public square they're they're invisible and ubiquitous in such a way that they have become the public square and they are private at the same time and so it's almost like watching um oh what was that channel that you just mentioned i slipped my mind the um, um conservative youtube channel that oh, you were just prager u. prager u yes thank you the
2: There's not a real university it is but that's popular these it days. is a
1: It is a YouTube channel. You could start Larson University. I Um, should. You should. That's shit.
2: That's a great idea.
1: Larson U. Do it. I would watch it. (laughs) I
2: wouldn't watch it. Like, it's... Anyway. (laughs) Okay,
1: so... But I think that that reveals, like how much it flies in the face these companies fly in the face of our intuition in a way i don't know it it clashes intuitively it's like this feels like the public square this is ubiquitous and invisible and all permeating the way the public square is therefore shouldn't i have this level of freedom of speech but they aren't that they are a private company and there's it's just a conflict that i don't think we've ever had before
2: you know, this is like the traditional thing with monopoly, though. Like once you have a monopoly in any industry, you know, from online video to oil, you know, like there's no alternatives. So they become like a market government because like they have, you know, a monopoly on that industry. So there's always kind of been this issue in monopoly. Like so AT&T, because of network effects, it had a phone service monopoly through most of the 20th century, through you know, through land, back when we had landlines for our phones. That's many, many years, you know. And uh, because it was a monopoly, though, government like sanctioned it. They said, all right, we'll let you keep this monopoly that you have because of these mar- market-based network effects, AT&T. But you're going to have to like follow these basic requirements like common carrier laws requiring everyone to get the same phone treatment and so on. Uh, But like they say, like, that's a thing. Like they said, all right, if you're going to be a monopoly, you're going to have to serve the public interest. That means you have to have network neutrality and stuff like that. Like, so some like pro public access restrictions were put on that monopoly then, because it was seen like there's part of the public square and the phone system, like that's a big part of how, especially in those days, how people were able to communicate, you know, Mm -hmm. so we could go back to that and put similar requirements on these platforms. I mean, they'll fight that until Kingdom, come, you know, and what they want to do is they'll say, well, we'll make our own little restrictions so that the government doesn't need to do it and ours will be shittier and we'll ignore them after a few years when people forget about it. But that's always the tension that's there. It's true, man. We seem to realize like these companies might be private property, but once everyone relies on them in that sort of public square functioning, it's a totally different deal. If there were 30 different YouTubes and for some reason people just loaded up video to whatever, which one, which one of them they felt like then mm. they wouldn't be so important that we wouldn't have this conversation. But who wants to do that? Like, put all your videos in one place so everyone could see them and so you get the biggest possible audiences. That's the economic incentive. And so their right. monopoly is the reality. So we got to deal with this shit, even if it is, yeah, kind of counterintuitive in that way. It's true.
1: Oh, were you the one... Also, an, another thought, and just going back to the response to the Alex Jones thing, the, where, you know, they... I, I As I understand... These companies, Alex Jones, did very much so violate their terms of service. And so they shut him down because he was inciting violence. Um, But kind of I don't remember if it was in follow up to that or if it was in response to other far right violent groups on these platforms. But they started these these platforms started cracking down. And an inadvertent effect was that they were shutting down leftist content <laughs> as well. And that's another thing that I feel like needs to be brought up is. It's true. Yeah.
2: Yeah. When these platforms, you know, they for years and years, they didn't want to even monitor what was on their platforms and they didn't do much content monitoring or hiring of penniless people to do it. Uh, Cause they were just focused on growth. You know, the crazy growth that comes from having a platform and a growing monopoly. Like that's something that kept them focused for years and years. Once they became huge and Facebook played a role in electing President Genius and once YouTube videos, you know, once, uh, you know, Maybelline ads were airing on Al Qaeda recruiting videos on YouTube, they realized like, oh, crap, we have to police these systems a little bit. Like that brought about like some change in their behavior and the firms now, I just wrote about this for current affairs, like they're trying to be on their best behavior. You know, yeah. uh, during this period, especially with the virus, because they know that like they have this history and people are a little more suspicious of them, even though we still rely on them constantly, of course. Right. Uh, so, like, you know, mm-hmm. they have tried to clean up their act a tiny bit, but not much. You know, like, they're still collecting our data. Apple and Google are going to use the, uh, proximity sensing abilities of the phone to try to track who's been exposed to COVID-19 Amazon's firing organizers. Uh, so these firms haven't really changed. They're just trying to, uh, I think look a little bit nicer now that this is like, this is an opportunity for them. We're more and more reliant on their cloud computing and Facebook and YouTube Mm. than ever Mm. while most of us are quarantined and uh, practicing social distancing. So at least we have this technology to communicate with them. We're more reliant on them than ever. So even while they're gaining, more even more reliance on them from us they're also you know they're trying to be on their best behavior so they don't screw it up and look bad in this moment Mm. Uh, although if you really look at what they're doing like i said it is
1: they're still screwing it up it still doesn't look very good (laughs) so i guess one last question that i want to ask you and this was and it's it's a very i don't know it has much more to do with just being an emotional creature confronting these facts with and i think that honestly this is it it's what makes leftism hard because i think it's i think and i include myself in this being a leftist means being super bummed out (laughs) by the world and that's hard and that sucks and we'd much rather just enjoy these technologies We'd, we'd much rather just buy a a metric fuck ton of shit on Amazon and have it be delivered in two days and enjoy our smartphones and upgrade every two years and get our AirPods and, you know, all just all of that shit. And we, we are very uncomfortable with confronting the dark facts beneath it. But we have to. And I think that's that's one thing that works against leftism, honestly, is this human impulse to just not want to deal with it. It means being angry and it means being depressed and it means being um, really, really bummed out about the state of the world. And that's the way it should be, because that's how we start change. You know, it, it, it starts with that anger and. I guess the question becomes, we are reliant on these technologies, and they are good. The technology itself is good. So how do you emotionally navigate relying on these technologies while also being aware of just how disgusting the companies are that produce them? How do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, that's a fair question, but I think it's the same as for everything else. You know, like when I flip on the lights, you know, I'm contributing to climate change and, you know, helping exploitative country uh, companies, right? Electricity, you know, technology is neutral, but we put it to a lot of important human uses that we need. So it's a good thing to have new technologies that help us have better lives and live longer and so on. Yes, So to me, like, yeah, the technology is, like, fundamentally, like, very useful, and it has, like, a lot of positive applications. But it's just like, you know, when you drive a car, when you turn on, yeah, the lights, or when you watch TV, like, you're getting corporate capitalist products. Like, you might be a – I said this a while ago in a video I made. Like, you can – you know, you might be a socialist or whatever you might be, but you live in modern capitalism. Like, that's what you live in. Just because you don't believe in it doesn't mean you don't have to participate in it. participate in it every day you can't go to best buy and get a giant tv and when they go all right sir that'll be 800 dollars. you can't go like oh i don't believe in that <laughs> oh, they're they're like, oh okay fine just go anyone else not believe in paying you guys can all go too. like it doesn't happen right we live in capitalism so just like you know the same is the case with other things we consume When you're on YouTube, when you're using Facebook, when you're looking at your Apple or Samsung smartphone, just realize, you know, like these products are made under hideous conditions and did horribly environmentally destructive things in the course of producing them. And they have a lot of social and material side effects on people in the world. But it's useful technology. Like, so what you should be doing is using these tools and getting the value out of them that you need, especially as we all go through this stressful, fucked up time. But recognizing that they could be produced, we could have all these things, we could have electricity and smartphones and personal transportation that don't destroy the future and that aren't made on the backs of suffering of millions of poor people in the third world. You know, yes. We could do that, we just freaking won't do it because it's not as profitable to do that. It would mean dethroning a lot of really powerful CEOs and capitalists to make that happen. So you know, like, how do you emotionally navigate it? I mean, every one of us has to figure this out once you stop believing in the institutions that organize society, man. You have to right. figure out how you're going to carry on and deal with that. And you know, I think depression is definitely obvious. No one should be depressed. Like very helpful. But you should try to avoid depression over these kind of issues. Like it's true, we tend to fight a lot of losing battles on this. On the other hand, we didn't use to have Medicare. For who we have it for, you know, maybe in the future we get it for everybody, especially after this crisis happens. You know, we used to have nothing guaranteed. We used to have no social safety net. We used to be much poorer. Like you now, we've made changes. You know, like we had a black president. We might get a woman in there one day. Who knows? Like these things are strides <laughs> that are happening, even as we take steps back with horrible crypto fascist movements in the world. Uh, you know, there are things that we can do. We have labor movements that Amazon is trying to fight. We should be supporting that. Like there are ways absolutely. We These tech workers, the tech worker coalition is organizing some of these guys and and trying to get these men and women into unions that can bargain on some kind of terms with entities that are a trillion dollar size corporations. It's not so easy. Mm. You can support them, though, you know, and you can look into ways to incorporate that into the activism you do around all the other issues that we're individually pulled in a million different directions on. But don't give in to despair. That's lame. It's not wrong Mm. of you to want to use your phone. It's not wrong of you to want to go on dumb YouTube. These are useful platforms. That's why they were developed through public research. We just should be thinking at the time, just like with anything else we consume, it's really great being able to fly. I can see my family who live far away. It would be nice if we had high-speed trains instead so I could go there and not have to go through the unpleasantness of flying, uh, but still travel Mm. very quickly and see my loved ones who live far away. Like we could have these things better So there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a standard of living. It's this evil way of doing it that we have now that's got to go.
1: That needs to go, absolutely. And I think that that's actually a really, really important point um, about not falling into despair. Because I think it is so easy for a lot of us on the left to become doomers, especially the very online left (laughs) because we're we're constantly being just assaulted by how bad the world is (laughs) and and i think that there is something fundamentally disempowering about social media i think by its nature it makes you feel helpless i and i don't think it's intended to be that way but i think that it the maybe the way the algorithms are or whatever it it by it is biased towards um outrage but in a disempowering way. And so I think it's really hard for a lot of people, myself included, to not become doomers. And there's this quote by Ursula K. Le Guin, who is a great sci-fi writer. She says, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. She's no, very
2: good. She, she's
1: great. Oh, she's so great. And that's, I don't know, like that quote has become a mantra for me. It's like when I start getting really, really down about the state of the world and feeling very helpless, I remember that quote and that um, no matter how impossible things might feel, there's um, and no matter how all pervasive something might be, Uh, the divine right of Kings was all pervasive. And yet that, that was broken, um, over time. Yeah. So anyway, well, this has been great. I've really, really enjoyed this. I hope my listeners have as well, uh, for people who want to follow you, um, or check out your work, where can they do that?
2: Yeah, thanks, man. So, uh, yeah, of course, I'm on Facebook (laughs) because who isn't anymore? (laughs) Uh, Search for me on there; you'll find it very quickly. And uh, on Twitter, at ironicprofessor, if you want more content than on Facebook and about dumber arguments, yes, uh, you can go on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, A lot of goofy, dumb, important conversations take place on Twitter. It's It's, like Facebook but shittier. You'll you'll find. Uh, Come on, find me there. Uh, Part of a really fun group of people there and yeah we may be extremely online but you know some of us are still partially in contact with reality which is you know important so that's good
1: very good also you write for current affairs um So everyone go check out current affairs. I will link your article. If I remember to, I make no promises, but I will try to remember to link your article. Also, everyone should be reading current affairs. Anyway, they're, they're the fucking best. Have you also written for Jacobin by the way?
2: Yeah. A few things for Jacobin, a little thing about Bill Gates a while ago. And uh, also uh, dollars and cents and the cover story of dollars and cents right now. Oh, nice. The the lesser known. Yeah. Left-wing economics magazine. It's actually really fun to read. I tell you, I mean, I, I'm an economist, but I know economics that I teach at a community college. I know economics that people can read. and That's that people great. Can't read. Dollars and Cents is very enjoyable. Check out its website. Uh, it's very good.
1: Uh, great. I will. To, I've actually. Subscribe
2: to all of these magazines. Yes. Yeah,
1: subscribe to all of them. Um, I've never heard it was called it's called Dollars and Cents.
2: That's right, dollars and cents, like common sense. Right? Yeah, you love them, like very good. Uh, nice. Know, public sector and leftist economics. Uh, they've been chugging along since the seventies or something like that. Like they're oh, very nice. Uh, long-standing, little little obscure econ journal. Very, very, very good.
1: Great. All right. Well, everyone, go uh, follow Rob on Twitter and Facebook and uh read his stuff on jacobin dollars and cents and um oh what was the other one current affairs also everyone go read bit tyrants it is fantastic go buy it from amazon i guess
2: you know, most local bookstores are still doing like delivery or curbside pickup.
1: There you go. Really Get it from a local bookstore. Amazon
2: even more uh, business. Mm-hmm. Most local bookstores, you can call them and they'll like do a, v- a version of you picking up the book. It's hard to support our local retailers and bars right now. So whatever we can do. We should For do, sure. Uh,
1: so we support did. your local bookstore if you have one, if it hasn't been, you know, beamed up by Amazon. Uh, And of course,
2: you can also always go through the publisher itself. And they, I think, have it on a discount right now.
1: Oh, which publisher is it?
2: Very promptly. And of course, there's a very nice ebook edition, too.
1: Yes, that's what I got. Uh, What was the publisher, by the way?
2: That's Haymarket Books. And they have a great list. People should go to Haymarket Books, Google their websites, and uh, very, very good uh, catalog there. Great list.
1: Fantastic. Also, your previous show or your previous book was done by. Oh, by uh, Zero Books, friend of the show. Doug has been on this show several times. He's great. Oh, that's great. Doug's a lot of fun, yeah. I love, I love Douglas Lane. Okay, well, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Just let me know whenever you'd like to come on.
2: Right on, man, I appreciate it. It was really fun.
1: For sure. All right. Well, that is it for this show. As always, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and 117. You can find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and this is a Rock Candy Media production. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, Hail Satan! We'll see you next week.
0: We'll i